Hello everybody, welcome to Health Hackers episode six. I'm Gemma Evans, I'm a TV presenter and journalist here in the UK and this is my series devoted to meeting and interviewing some of the most pioneering and influential health hackers, people in the health and wellness space and my guest today is Fiona Oakes. Oh and also joining us is Percy. <laughs> Percy is Fiona's mascot. That's, that's the right term, isn't it? He's yeah, he's his friend, companion, travelling companion. He's your best friend when you're running all over the world doing amazing things. Mm. And let me just tell you a little bit about Fiona, if you don't already know about her amazing achievements. Okay, she holds three Guinness World Records for marathon running. She's the fastest woman in the world to run a marathon on all seven continents and the North Pole. Overall, she's competed in more than 50 5-0 marathons all around the world. In 2015, she ran six marathons in six days on six continents. That's probably why she has the nickname Queen of the Extreme. And she's also a vegan. Now, uh, I hope I got all that correct yeah. on my notes down here. You'll notice me looking down a lot. That's because I've got my laptop so I can see your questions and your comments. If you have any questions for Fiona, put them in the comments section below and then I can read them all and put them to Fiona. We have Fiona with us for the next 30 minutes, so make the most of this, make the most of her time. And uh, if you can think of anybody who might benefit from watching this episode of Health Hackers, maybe you have um, a friend who thinks that vegans can't be amazing athletes, you might want to tag them and then they can watch this and then they can learn because we're all learning together. Now let's start um, where it makes sense, at the beginning I guess. So when I've been researching you Fiona, there's so many things that I have discovered that are so fascinating but one of the things is that when you were a child you you decided to go veggie yeah. at three yeah and then vegan at six yeah. but neither of your parents were either veggie or vegan yeah so where did this come from I think it came out of a very very raw pure love of animals I loved animals I didn't want to harm them that was very obvious I knew where at three I knew where meat came from meat came was the flesh of an animal I understood that and I rejected it but in that period, I started to ask my mum, where were like eggs coming from? Why was the cow giving us her milk? Doesn't she eat for her baby? And I was very, very fortunate at this time. I will say now, I don't always consider myself as a public speaker or, or somebody who feels comfortable in front of a camera talking about what I've done because in the scheme of things, I, I, I don't believe I've done that much. But as a role model, I think it's very important. And at that time, my mum had a role model in an ex-piano teacher who was a vegan lady in, in the 1950s. And my mum had kept in contact with her, and she was able to turn to this lady for some advice. And it was so pivotal at that time, because this is in the 1970s, when people really didn't even almost conceptualise well, exactly, what... yeah. What kind of acceptance was there for not only being vegan, but being a vegan child? None at all. I mean, we had to hide it. It wasn't so bad at school, um, you know, taking a packed lunch, stuff like that. At home, my mum was doing all the cooking. We did have a hiatus in my teenage years when I was hospitalised quite a lot I had a problem with my knee yeah I had, we're gonna come on to that that's yeah. another fascinating story stay with us for that that's yeah. amazing I had these multiple surgeries and health professionals were sort of saying to my mom when this diet flagged up this is not healthy that she isn't going to grow into a healthy adult what are you doing and it was actually put at the time that it was child abuse my mom <gasps> had to really? face that charge and a lot of people even today say the same thing their parents, they want to bring up a vegan child, that they get it from schools and colleagues and family even, that this is uh, child cruelty. But my mum has always stuck by me um, and she said, you know, it would be 
more cruel to actually lie to Fiona. She obviously feels very passionate about it. I don't want to look back in future years having lied to her when she um, forced her to eat something which she obviously does not want and wants to reject. So that's, I'm very that's lucky. That's actually really brave of your mum. Extremely brave of my mum. And without my mum, uh, she still backs me today. Uh, and she's usually always with me everywhere I go, and people know that. Very, very supportive, and I'm very, very blessed to have that. So would you say then that you're not vegan for health reasons? It's purely the cruelty factor? Yes, it's the love of animals. Every, I mean, I've always said, I know everybody comes to this path for a different reason. There are so many ways of arriving at veganism. For me, it's not that, you know, it's... My veganism is growing with me now. It started as a love of animals. Then I obviously wanted to nurture animals. Now I realise, with more education and experience, how veganism knocks on to the planet, the environment, how exploitative the whole industry is, not just for animals, but humans alike. Um, so I'm constantly growing and learning. But for me, the core of my veganism is, and I think always will be, just a basic role of animals. And if I had to eat beans and potatoes for the rest of my life, I would do so to be vegan. We're going to talk more about food in a little bit. If you're watching this on Facebook, please put a question if you have one for Fiona in the comments section. If you're listening to this as a podcast, hello. Um, and I'm afraid you can't leave a live question, but we're going to cover loads, so keep listening. Uh, so you mentioned the condition you had in your teens, mm. right? So this was an orthopedic condition. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that it was so bad that doctors told you you wouldn't run, you wouldn't yeah. be able to run. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to run because I had my kneecap removed. And it's a very pivotal part of the, you know, for impact exercise. It stabilizes your knee. So they said you probably can do things like cycling, but you will never run, you will never do high impact sports. So it's quite a long story why I ended up doing a high yeah. impact sport. Um, and the reason I do the high impact sport is basically for the sanctuary. We'd moved to the sanctuary. I didn't have a lot of time, I didn't have a lot of money. And I just wanted to do something to keep fit originally. And then it kind of progressed on from there. And this is how the running started? Yeah. But just going back, because I don't want to skip over too lightly the fact that you were nearly at one point registered disabled. Yeah, that's completely true. So what, what, was, what was the problem with the knee? And, and how did you even psychologically see beyond that, that you might one day actually be running and running to the extent that you are now running? Truthfully, I didn't at the time. I mean, all I saw, all it was, and this is back in the 1980s, early 90s, I was going into hospital, coming out with my leg in plaster, lots of surgeries to try and rectify this condition that I had, particularly in my right leg, but because I was weight-bearing so much on the left side, mm -hmm. that also became a problem to me, so I had these multiple surgeries on both legs. And I don't think I really did see beyond it, beyond it at the time. I didn't intend to start running. I actually, um, because I'm very sporty, and I'd always been sporty at school before this hit me, I, um, I went away, I missed most of my education, I will say that, school education. I was off school, leg in plaster most of the time. I remember even doing my, what, GCEs, GCSEs at the time. I had to have special dispensation to keep getting up and leaving the room because I couldn't sit for very long. Um, and um, at the time, so I, I, my, I then went on to Oxford, I went to college, I trained for a profession, I came down to London, and the sport I chose was cycling at the time because it wasn't straight constant motion yeah. exercise, no impact. And that was the sport that I've done well so in. you thought that would be easier on your knee, basically? Yeah, and it was also a facilitator to actually get to work because I actually used to come to and from work and I was just explaining to one girl that I used to gradually move further and further and further out of London where I was living. So I ended up living like 40 miles away and still mm. cycling in and back to work. 
Um, but then um, I met my partner, we started to do rescue on a slightly larger scale, we didn't have a property. So rescue as in animal rescue, yeah. because if you don't know about Fiona, she also owns a sanctuary with 450 animals. Yeah which she looks after while she's training to do all these amazing running events around the world. We'll talk about that a bit later as well. Um, yeah, so you, you went from cycling and then into running. Yeah, I mean, basically the running occurred, the, the, the principle, we got the sanctuary and it was a long story how we ever did that because it was always a dream. I never actually thought it would become a reality to actually be able to nurture and care for animals on my terms and on the terms with the dignity and respect that I believe they all deserve, whether it be domestic or ex-farmed. Um, so we got the sanctuary. Um, my partner continued to work because he was earn earning a much larger wage than myself. And the idea was that I would stay at home and look after the animals. Um, but I'm a person that is never enough for me. Then my, my veganism was starting to grow and I was thinking, I was soon realising that no matter how many animals I physically can take in and care for, there are millions and billions out there that can't have any impact on their lives and they're the most needy. So I thought, well, what, what can I do to help them? There was so much, if it, I won't say there was so much negativity towards veganism. There was no actual acceptance of veganism. You never came across the word vegan at the time. Um, and I thought, well, I'm a healthy adult now, very able, that I want to use what I've got to, to be able to speak out for those animals that I'm passionate about helping. And I didn't know how to do it. I, there was no social media at the time. People forget it's before the computer, before Facebook, before Twitter and tweeting something out. It was literally, in order to get any publicity, you've got to have done something. So I thought, well, I need to build myself a platform from which I can speak out for the animals. And um, I thought, well, what can I do? I've got very little time because I'm caring for the animals at the sanctuary. Even less money. It's got to be something cheap, easy, quick that you can do literally out the front door, do alone, any time of the day or night. And at the time, marathon running was coming to the forefront because of Paula Radcliffe's success in the event. That was the buzzword. So I thought, well, I wish I could do marathon running, but I know I've been told I can never do impact sport, but I won't know until I try. So I, went, I started to jog. I thought, okay, um, I'm, I'm okay. I think, you know, looking at the times that I'm running, I feel fit, I can do this. Started to enter a few local races, started to win races, and that's when I actually made the decision to take the next step up to kind of becoming what I call some sort of competitive athlete. It wasn't easy. I, I've never had a coach, and a lot of the time... Never had a coach? No. I mean, that is quite something for, mm. for an athlete to say they've never had a coach. Mm. I've never had a coach actually because when I started to achieve the, 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 the results I was kind of going to people and they were saying for sure um, you've got some possible ability, the times are good that you've got on the shorter distances. I'd, I'd made it clear that I wanted to do well at the marathon, that was the event I'd selected, uh, extreme endurance and it was before the popularity of these more kind of off the wall events. It was like 26.2 miles was the ultimate in endurance and Paula Radcliffe was generating the interest in this event. So I thought that's the one I've got to do. Um, but um, I'll be honest with you, a lot of people turn me down because of my veganism. You know, you, we're not going to put effort into you with a coaching programme. So the coaches didn't want to coach you because, because you were vegan? Yeah. Yeah. And even now, I, yesterday, um, last year I went to Los Angeles to help promote a scheme which was trying to get um, uh, vegan options into all Californian schools. And the lady who invited me there, her daughter is quite a good college athlete. And she says she's had exactly the same, even in this day and age, from coaches very reluctant to take Lila on board because of her veganism. Is there a part of you that ever thought, hmm, 
Should I try not being vegan no. to see if it affects my performance? No, never. No, no. The performance is secondary to what I believe in. The, 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 the performance is only there because of what I believe in. I wouldn't be running if it wasn't. So even if tomorrow there was a study and it was irrefutable that being a vegan was really, really unhealthy and damaging, you would remain being a vegan because of the element, the, the cruelty element to the animals. Absolutely, but I would also say in that that it, um, you can't study someone's mind and the benefit that their positivity of mind is giving them. And for me, for an athlete, if you want to call me an athlete, I don't even call myself an athlete. I just call I, myself I say you're runs. an athlete. Yeah. But I, I just stand, you, your mind and your body has got to be right. And I know when I stand on any start line, I'm doing this for the animals without any exploitation of them. It's for them, it's not for me. And I believe that that drives me that extra little bit further. I don't, I'm not selfish enough to just think I'm pushing myself this hard for an extra few seconds or to win a Garmin or a medal or a trophy. That's not why I'm there at all. I wouldn't be running if it wasn't for the promotion of positive promotion of veganism to a wider audience. I wouldn't be doing it. Right, now talking about you and your racing. So last year, uh, Fiona took on what is probably considered the toughest foot race on earth. Mm. It's 250 kilometres, the Marathon de Sable. Mm. Um, tell us what, where that is and what that entails. Well, actually, that's in the Moroccan Sahara Desert, um, and I actually have done it three times. Um, just three. Just three. The first time I did it, I did it in 2012, and basically my running has not been something that I've done to win events or anything like that. It's all been kind of, if you want to say, masterminded around can it benefit the animals. So I started the running career, as most people, just road marathons, A to B, as fast as you can get, that's the end of the story. And I've got top 20 places in London and Berlin Marathon. I've um, got a personal best of two hours, 38 minutes. And at that point, I thought, well, I'm never going to win London Marathon. I'm not a runner. I'm just someone who is channeling some ability, some athletic ability or some physical ability into running. I just want the best out of myself because I'm not going to waste my time delivering this sort of effort when I could be doing something else positive for the animals if I'm not doing 100%. So I, um, I thought, well, I've reached the pinnacle of what I can do with the road running. Somebody then said, well, why don't you move down a tier? Rather than coming like top 20 in London or Berlin, win some marathons. So I thought, okay, that's a good idea. So I set about you know, going around, picking smaller races, winning them, breaking course records, promoting the veganism. Because I will explain at this point that the, the largest running club in the UK is Vegan Runners. Really? Yes, because actually it's not a centralised running club, it's not uh, dedicated to one area. Vegans join it and it's kind of a conceptual running club where there's little subsidiaries of, run of that mm. running club, but it, is, it does actually have the largest membership in the UK. And back in 2004, to run on the start lines that I was running on, championship start lines and elite start lines, you had to be um, a part of um, a, a proper affiliated, UK athletics affiliated running club. And at the time the only one was the Vegetarian Cycling and Athletics Club. And I thought, that's great. I joined that club, but I thought it was always niggling at the back of my mind. Gosh, this is a massive opportunity to get this word on your vest, vegetarian or whatever, out there to a, a big audience. Uh, basically, if you run on the Elite Start, the Ladies' Marathon in London, you're running 45 minutes ahead of the rest of the field, wearing a billboard with whatever it says on your jumper and your number. So um, at that point, we decided, a guy in the Vegetarian Athletic Cycling Club said, you're getting the results that, you know, really, I think there's an opportunity here for a dedicated vegan running club. 
with the idea that that will get the vegan word out across your vest in these kind of high profile events and these high profile starts. So that's why Vegan Runners was started. Um, so anyway, I did, I did, I won loads of events and then I was kind of thought, well no, okay, I've done about all I can do here with this part of my running. I either pack up or I find something else. And one of my, um, I always joke about it and say one of my friends, and people say, if you've got friends who suggest this to you, what do your enemies suggest you do? But um, one of my friends suggested, look, you've done fast marathons, you've knocked those out year in, year out. Why don't you look at doing the toughest foot race on the planet, which is Marathon de Sable? Uh, basically, like you say, 250 kilometres across the Sahara Desert, roughly a marathon a day, it was one day's a double marathon, uh, but you have to carry all your own supplies, so you've got a pack that weighs 11 kilos, you've got like um, 50 degree plus heat, you've got sand dunes that are just yeah. like mountains, really, really tough race. Um, go and do that, and then you prove that you can, you'd be the first vegan woman to do that race. Um, I did it. Um, it wasn't easy for me because in conjunction with doing the running, I'm always looking after the animals. Uh, one of the horses at the sanctuary stood on my foot the week before oh, I went and broke two toes. What? Yeah, so I had to go out there. So you ran, you still ran the race? Yeah. With two broken toes? Yeah. 250 kilometres in the Sahara Desert? Yeah. And that was the week before the, ra the race. I, did, I didn't, uh, anybody who's out there who's sporty will know um, to not go is, is to watch that plane leave without you after all the effort I put into the training and the management of the pack. I did it as an ethical vegan, which meant that I couldn't have anything down filled. So not only I'd got heavy so everything food. is no, Everything is a vegan product, so there's no yeah. leathers in your trainers. Yeah, or nothing like that. Uh, it, same with the sleeping bag. So my pack was very, very heavy. I'd worked very, very hard for this race. And also it was out on the internet that this vegan woman was going to attempt this challenge. And I just didn't feel I could let people down. So I didn't tell anyone apart from the doctor, my family knew, and a few close friends. And I went out there and gave it a go. And it was absolutely brutal. And I always say that on the long stage, I took some plasters and whatever I got on my foot off. And you could see the bones sticking out of my little toe. And it, you're still running day to day. Yeah, I'm, I'm running for the animals. Oh, and I was goodness. getting messages of support from around the world. They let How me do have you even mess. sleep? So do, I'm guessing that each night you stop off at a camp to sleep. Yeah, you have a designated tent which, which you share with seven strangers. And you literally just have the space that your sleeping bag takes. You get a limited supply of water. If you ask for extra water, if you don't manage your water properly, um, then you get penalties if you, if you need more. It's a very, very tough race. It's kind of the wow. definitive of, of tough. Do you, do you actually sleep, given that you have bones sticking out of your feet and you're in a tent with seven strangers who might be snoring really loudly? Mm. No, you don't do much sleeping, but the adrenaline keeps you going and the fact of why I'm doing it. Um, but anyway, I got through the race. I got the medal. That's what everyone wants, the MDS medal. Um, so um, then, of course, I was looking for other challenges. Um, I decided that probably because I kind of realised that I hadn't reached my full potential in that kind of event, I'd enter the next year, see if I could get a place the next year and go back and try again without the broken toes. But in the meantime, another one of my friends said, okay, you've done the hottest, the hardest, why don't you do the polar marathons? And I'm kind of, well, what the heck are they? And that's a marathon at the North Pole and in Antarctica. Yeah. And I actually thought, no way, that's just not possible. Um, anyway, it is possible. I went out there, and it, it, I was gonna do Marathon de Sable and the North Pole Marathon, but they absolutely coincide at the same time. So um, I made my decision um, purely because the race organizer of the, Mar uh, the North Pole Marathon offered me the place to go out there. He said, if you will go, 
the following year, I'll give you the place, which he did. And so I thought, I can't turn that opportunity down. So I went out there. I didn't know how I would be able to cope with this race because this is slightly different to straightforward road running. Your leg, the knee, I thought is going to probably be prohibitive to me doing this because bearing in mind I can do straightforward exercise. It can, it can impact, but my knee is not very stable because of the lack of a kneecap. And I found that I was I was pretty able to do it. I, um, I won the ladies' race, fastest woman to ever run a marathon out there, and uh, podium place with the men. Um, so it was a good event for me. And um, I wasn't, I, I don't actually know anything about running. I know about my running and what I do, but I'm not a big running buff. The only time I dedicate to running is when I'm doing it. I, I heard you once say that you don't even like running. I don't, I don't. Well, no, 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 no. That's, that's probably what are you doing it. For? Well, well, let me put it like this. I am blessed the fact that I can run and can continue to run. The arms and the legs are there and, and the bodily strength to run. And I know I'm blessed for that. And I don't want to insult anyone who would love to be able to run and can't for any reason. But you've got to understand that when you're doing it at such a high impact level, I don't want to waste a minute, every minute I cherish at the sanctuary. So the, the facts are, if I'm running, I'm hitting sessions really, really hard. So when I was road running, I was running 100 miles a week, three speed sessions a week, one long run, hill session, and recovery runs. So even the easy recovery runs in the evening after the speed sessions in the morning were hard because I was always tired. Mm -hmm. And I never actually rest in between them because I've always literally finished the running, run through the hats, that's some comedy sketch. Literally, I go in one door in, in my running shoes, my running kit, and come out the other door with a cup of peppermint tea in my hand, straight down the stables in my wellies. So um, I've ne if I had more time to enjoy a run on a, on a slow, lovely, sunny day, I probably would enjoy it. But the way and that the high intensity level and the pressure I put on myself to achieve, and the equation has been the better you run, the better you can deliver your message of positivity for what you are running for, which is the proactive, positive and peaceful promotion of veganism. And that's the psychology, that's what's keeping you going. Yeah. So we're getting lots of comments and questions, um, lots of compliments for you, understandably. Dave says, incredible stamina. Mike says, your guest is incredible. Uh, lots of incredibleness here. Um, Bev would like to know, uh, could you ask Fiona if her training diet differs greatly from her everyday diet? So typically what you really eat in a day. I guess you're always training. I'm always, right? no, honestly, but I'm always pretty much training. I've always got some harebrained plan going on. But my diet is very, very basic. And that's one of the things I wanted to address with veganism. For sure, any diet can be very, very expensive, um, you know, but mine isn't. Um, people think that a vegan diet has to be very, very prohibitive because of cost. My money, I mean, I've, I always say I've got 450 miles to feed at the sanctuary and they come before mine. So very often I'm the last person I think of with my diet. Very, very basic pasta, uh, vegetables, seasonal vegetables. My dad actually lives with us and he grows a lot of the vegetables that we eat. Um, nuts, just very, very basic stuff. So when I trundle off to the desert and you've got all these kind of aficionados who spent years and years packing a pack and they've got to, I've got like Marbaker flatjack bars which are 50p and do the job. And um, that's basically me. I'm basic and I can get the job done. And that's the same so with my food. So typically, so like for breakfast, you might have some pasta. 
I and don't really eat breakfast, to be honest. So you, do you think you run in a fasted state a lot of the time? Yeah, I do. Do you think that helps? Yes, Because there are some endurance mean. athletes yeah. who say that that helps them. Everyone is different with the endurance. I thought my diet was completely unique, and it was based around the fact that at one point I was rushing out to do retained firefighting, which meant to carry an alerter in my pocket, and I literally... It's another job. Another little job I do, you know. Firefighting. Yeah. Um, and I used to rush up to the fire station, and literally I got to be prepared to go to and be away for four hours and fight fires, which I found very difficult if you're in the middle of a meal, it came on the fact that I'm always outside with animals, so I tend to only eat one meal a day and don't snack in between. And I always thought that's a unique and I must keep that to myself and I mustn't tell people that. Um, until I went to a very high-profile race in Omsk and I was chatting to one of the Kenyan coaches and he said, um, so what do you eat? And I was telling him about the veganism. He said, oh, yes, the warrior diet. A lot of the Kenyan athletes follow that too. And I oh, <laughs> found somebody. Not that I'm comparing myself to a 208 Kenyan athlete. Um, but, yeah, so it's what works for you. It's not going to work meal, for everyone. And that is that high, that's high carb? Yeah, yeah, like your pastas. yeah, pastas and nuts and fresh stuff. And obviously it is different. When I'm in the desert, when I'm literally t attempting something like, you know, 15 hours across the desert, mm. I'll still try and keep it as basic and near normal as I can. For instance, I cannot afford and I do not use gels. You, if you don't use Blues, them in training, like yeah, gels, yeah. too too concentrated for my stomach because I live this very bland diet at home, basic diet. I wouldn't say it's bland, it's basic and very wholesome. Um, I don't. I try. I try not to vary too much when I'm away. So, for instance, it would be ridiculous to suddenly go and ask your body to run in 50 degree heat. You're running across the desert. You're carrying a backpack. You're living in all these hostile and unfamiliar conditions, and then all of a sudden you're piling in food that your body thinks, "What is this? Uh, you know, what is this chemical mess or mod you're putting yeah. in?" So I don't carry that sort of thing. Dates, apricots ginger, Tabasco. Um. So you could go for five days having your fruit flapjacks and dried fruit? Yeah. Do you find a lot of people say, where's the protein source in a vegan diet? And yeah, that's what the, mo the most bone of contention when people start asking, you know, where do you get your protein from? Protein in nuts, it's in spinach, in it, all sorts of hidden places. I will say also, I don't actually take any supplements at all. I never have. I have supplement B12 with like fortified soya and spreads and stuff like that, but I don't take any supplements. Because there, there is this theory that if you're not eating meat that you mm. won't um, have enough B12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you have that through your soy milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever had any tests to check on whether or not you've got any vitamin deficiencies? Uh, yeah, I mean, the only time I really have tests is when I go to uh, to do these races that you do. You, they demand quite rigorous um, med med medicals. You've got to have a medical. And um, I went up to one um, to have a medical. I couldn't see my regular doctor. Had had the ECG done. And she, I came back thinking she was going to say, you're fine. And she said, look, you've got a heart condition. You can't run out. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I said... What? You know, she said, look, look at your readings here. You know, you were looking at a heartbeat here of 32 beats a minute. That's, like, r ridiculous. Wow. So it was complete panic. I was going off to do a race the following week, and I was in a state of panic. Actually, I was doing a marathon on the Sunday in preparation for going off for a race the following week. And uh, so I said, I need to see a cardiologist. And um, I saw a guy uh, called Dr. Clesham that evening, and he said, I worked 15 years in research at Cambridge, and um, I wish I was still there because, honestly, you would be one subject I would like to mm. investigate. He said, it's absolutely perfect. You're it's like a perfect specimen. Your heart rate, uh, the regularity, everything. So, um, no, I, 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 
I, I don't, okay. I'm not really deficient in anything, not to my knowledge. I don't feel deficient. I keep bouncing back and doing things. So um, We have so much to talk about. There's so many questions. Mm. Oh my God, we're really running out of time. Mm. Um, so Dave had asked about, do you take any supplements mm. to deal with managing knee pain? But, I, but you don't take any supplements. Mm. Um, so with you managing your knee pain, is it just... Yeah, what I will say is I, rest, I, I know where this pain is familiar to me. I, I'm not telling people to go out and if it hurts, just run through it. And if your leg drops off, then that's the consequence. No, I can manage the knee pain. If the pain, I know how to make the pain stop. I'll just stop running. But I, so I know it's not something that I'm doing myself any great damage with. And I did actually have um, um, a kind of an ultrasound on my knee oh, yeah. a couple of years ago. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just very difficult for me to run because of the impact. But, it, you know, I'm not enjoying sure. it further. Um, Michael asks, what are the best high-carb vegan foods? I think we covered some mm, of your favourites, didn't yeah. we? Um, that was the pastas and the flapjacks. Uh, how do you, uh, Eve says, how do you compensate for the lack of B12 and essential fats? Will, mm. will you address that with mm. the soy milk? Uh, what about things like calcium, if you're not getting that from animal sources? There's like a lot dairy. of calcium in vegetables. Yeah. And, and also, I think the only thing is, I, I'm not telling anyone I'm a nutritionist. I'm telling, I'm just saying, this is how I've lived my life. Yeah. And I have grown up with this diet. I've been vegan since I was six years old. And we've learned to manage it in our own specific way before products were available. You couldn't even get a soya milk where I was born, like Chesterfield. It was very, very difficult. So it had to be formulated specifically for me. And I've grown with it. Whether my body compensates for it now because it's so used to it. And I will say now, because I've never craved things like the vegan ice creams and, the, uh, you know, I don't really go for those Yeah, I was going to say, do you do, do you eat the kind of fake processed meats no. and stuff? No. no, my partner does and there's a great place for them if you are craving that sort of thing. But you can't really crave what you've never had. So I don't crave yeah. it. Yeah, um, Richard says, do you feel like you are at optimal performance or do you think you might perform even better if you weren't vegan? I'm guessing the latter half of that. Yeah, I, 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 for me, myself personally, because I'm doing it with this inner charged desire, and fully enough, I'm not going to compare myself to this gentleman, but in 2005, I was blessed to be invited to run on the elite start of the Amsterdam Marathon, and I arrived early for the race, and Halle Gabriel-Selassie was going for the world record. And I was privileged, he was my hero at the time, to spend an evening with him in Amsterdam. And he actually said, we are very much alike. And I thought, no, 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 I can't run like you, actually, sir. Um, he actually took me out on a run. I went out with his training group the next day, and I felt kind of embarrassed because I'm running like eyeballs out of the back, and they're all kind of cruising along. But he actually said, the reason he's transitioned over from the 10,000 metres to go for the marathon is that inner responsibility that so many people in his country depend on him for their living, depend on his running. Because I don't know if people are aware, but he was putting a lot of his, the income that he earned through his running back into regenerating his community. Didn't know that, no. Yeah, and so he said, there's, there's an extra passion in my heart to want to do this, to want to do it for others. And he was basically saying the same sort of thing. To, take, to not just be doing it to win. Obviously, everybody wants to win or likes to win or likes to run their best. But when you've got the responsibility, the weight of the pressure of doing it for something or someone else other than yourself, mm. I think that gives you and that for optimum. for you, it's your animals. The animals, the sanctuary, and the positive promotion of veganism. That's all I want to do with my so running. So, a couple of questions here. Sue and Scott are also running marathons. Sue... Um, Sammy is training for a London for the London Marathon. Mm. She wants to know uh, what should she eat and drink straight after a long run. Do you do any kind of like muscle replenishment recovery straight after? I don't. I have to I be mean, honest with you. I we're, don't. We're going to be clear that like Fiona's not a nutritionist. I'm not. So I could sit here and if I could you're like asking you. questions about you know what is best to eat here, here, and here. 
I guess you'd say it's all on your own kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't run with a Garmin, I don't run with a pulse monitor, and I've always said your brain is the best computer you'll ever have about you. Learn to use it, that's what I've had to do, because I come from a time pre when you could look this stuff up, I've had to learn what works for me. I mean, if I were to tell you, if I'm doing anything up to about 20, 20 mile run, I don't, I didn't even take any fluid. I, I mean, I know there are places what? where... You yeah. don't hydrate on a 20 mile run? No. I know there are places that I can stop off and hydrate. It's all about making eggs, absolutely getting the maximum out of my training sessions, making them as tough as I can. So when it comes to, you can't simulate how fast you're going to run in a race. You can put other obstacles down. But on that 20 miles, and you haven't had breakfast either? No. So you're probably going for like two days without eating anything. No, I eat in the evening. You eat I just the eat night in the evening. Before, yeah. And then you're up yeah, and yeah. Oh, and I don't eat on the and morning. And again, of a race. we're not saying to don't repeat this. Don't do it. It's we just, just what I do. The 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 joy of this Facebook Live is that we just get to get inside Fiona's mind. And I'm telling the we're truth. We're not telling you to do yeah. this. I, I mean, I know. I mean, if anybody wants to write to me and ask, I know the things. I know the resources. I know the people that can get in touch. With. I'm not putting myself out there to sell you. Come to me and pay fifty pounds, and I'll, I'll tell you what to eat. I'm only telling you the truth about what I've done, and, and want to show that it can be done. I've had to do it on my terms to get it all crammed in my way. Looking after the animals, being on a very limited income, very limited time. Um, that's the way I've had to do it because I've been doing it for so long. But it's not necessarily the way you're going to do it. Uh, Scott says, huge well done to Fiona on such massive achievements. Uh, Scott is doing extreme altitude climbing and mountaineering, mm. and he'd like to know what method of fueling in both food and drink works best for you in colder climates. So is it different different kind of fuel? I know at the moment we've covered that you're pretty much not, not even eating. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, when, I went to, uh, when I did the North Pole Marathon, I didn't actually have anything during the race. I just set off and ran. Um, I came in for warm water. You couldn't carry anything about your person because everything was freezing in your pockets and crumbling. And I didn't actually have anything. How do you, how, how do you deal with the toilet situation? I'm not a marathon runner. I don't mm. know these details. But do, can you stop it other ways? Or, or, do you, or are you self-sufficient in that? They, they give you kit to be self-sufficient in... In the Sahara, they give you kit to be self-sufficient. Okay. Like but I'll tell... i say this. I have ne I've never had a coach. I've never had a massage. I've never had any physio. Yeah, never. I've got the money for it. I just have personally. Wow. I haven't got the money for it. My, my running clothes generally will be sourced from charity shops, and my shoes I do pay attention to because obviously of the impact. It's different for me. I'm not saying I'm not asking everyone to do it my way, but I will say when I was starting my marathon running career, I knew I hadn't got these things, so I had to look at what I had got and what I could micromanage. And the things that can really stop you in a marathon are the stomach cramps. You could be going as well as you like. I know a guy that was in the London Marathon, he was on for a 2.30 time, and it took him eight minutes to get the last 800 metres of birdcage walk. Really? So it got stomach cramps. Touch wood, in a road race, I have never stopped for a toilet break. I have never had to have any problems with my stomach. It works for me to literally carbo-load, and then on the day before, I don't go in for the massive amounts of food. I'll have the drinks, but I don't want to fill my stomach drastically, because if for me, I micro if you want the truth, I micromanage when I'm going to go to the toilet, so I know what's going to happen before a race. They're the things that I can do, and they're the things that I can do for free. And they're the things, very often, it's the little things that make the difference. I'm never going to be, um, uh, you know, Edna Kiplinger. I'm never going to be Paula Radcliffe. But the, and I realise that, but the little tiny attention to detail that I, I have always paid, and I'm very meticulous with that, because they're the things that you can do for free. Mm that you're in control of. Yeah. Um, right, we've got so many questions, and I'm Facebookers, I'm really sorry if we haven't 
have time to get through all of your questions. Um, but I do want to just talk a little bit about the sanctuary mm -hmm. because it's so important to you and it's such a massive part of your life. Bev would like to know um, when Fiona is getting closer to race, race time, uh, does she have to reduce her workload at the sanctuary? Um, I tr obviously, I'm, I'm care I, when you're getting close to a race time, I taper so my running drops down so I can dedicate more time to the animals. And um, my partner's been on a year off, um, but up until that point, literally, I was having to literally play tag with him. So he would get home on a Friday evening, and then I'd probably go to the marathon I was going to on the Saturday, run it and come home and be back on Monday so he could go to work. And I will say that when I did um, the world record attempt... Um, I actually went there and back to Australia in less four, in four days, ran London Marathon Championship qualifying time, placed in the marathon, came home, was back home on the Monday afternoon, unwrapping bread, donated bread for the pigs, and Martin went to work. No jet lag and ready to go again the following week. Every race I ran for that challenge, I ran in sub-championship qualifying time, back to back, week in, week out, to do that record. Um, so, no, the, the sanctuary comes first. The running is always second to the sanctuary, and I think the main motivator that... I would need to get out there is lack of time. I'm literally one of those really, really amateur runners that will be, I'll be shoveling more, or putting hay in the trough, thinking, if I go inside, where can I find something that resembles a pair of socks that I can actually put on to go running in? And I go out and literally grab my stuff, go running, do my training, come back and get on, take up from where I left off. So the, the animals never come secondary to the, to the running. When I get back from races, um, the recovery time, I can just put more effort into the sanctuary. And remind us how people can get involved in the sanctuary. Is there somewhere that on Facebook or Twitter that they can follow what's going on there? Um, yeah, I mean, if you search for Tower Hill Stables Animal Sanctuary, we're based in Essex. We're not based at Tower Hill. Um, we're based, some people think we are, but we're in Essex. You can check out. It's all kind of heavily intertwined. My life is all intertwined. So if they look for Fiona Oaks, the sanctuary stuff comes up, the running stuff comes up. Anybody can write in. Anybody can ask me a question. I'll help anyone. I'm not asking. People say to me, what can we do to help? Obviously, sponsoring an animal financially, we'd need about £15,000 a month to run that sanctuary. But with the running side of it, I'm not selling anything other than this idea that you can do whatever you want on a vegan diet if you choose to take that path. And I'm here to help and I always will help people I don't ask for anything back all I want to people is to take this vegan message take it away and work with it the way they want to work with it that's all I want back from it all I want I'm going to include in the show notes that come after this episode I'm going to include all the details that Fiona just said there all the various websites and Facebook pages um, just a quick note on what's next for you you've got this event coming up that you're training for now when does that kick off it kicks off in April, it's called the Four Deserts Grand Slam. It's kind of four kind of slightly toned down marathon disabled in each of the kind of hostile deserts. So you've got Namibia, Gobi, Antarctica and Atacama. And it's testing you in kind of altitude, cold, hot. So yeah, and that's all in place for about seven months. And there's currently a movie being made about you right now? Yeah, Keegan Coon. Because it's made... about time. Yeah. I mean, it's a good uh, story. A guy who made um, Caspiracy and What the Hell's Keegan Coon, his next film is about me and he came to the desert with me last year and filmed and he's been filming at the sanctuary with the idea of just letting the world know what I've done and promoting veganism positively. That's amazing. Fiona, it's been an absolute pleasure. Fiona travelled um, from, from your sanctuary mm. today. It probably took you about three hours or something, didn't it? Slightly less. So come in here and uh, the lovely people at Rocket Space have lent us this room in Islington so that we could meet Fiona. So thank you so and much Percy. for coming. Ooh. And Percy, Percy <laughs> Muscle, who goes everywhere, including yeah. to Health Hackers yeah. recordings. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your questions. And I'm going to lean in to turn this off. Um, but I want to say, if you hit like on my Facebook page, then you'll be notified when we go live for the next Facebook Live, Episode 7. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank